You're listening to another episode of the Sacred Changemakers podcast. My name is Jane Warrilow, and we have got a great roundtable lined up for you today. Now, this podcast is about change and transformation, but not just any old change. We believe in change for good, which lies at the intersection of three things, personal, professional, and social transformation. So come with us on a journey as we go behind the scenes with people who are making a real difference in our world. Each episode, we're going to be diving deeply into a variety of topics that keep you inspired and at your best. Sometimes we'll be interviewing thought leaders, and sometimes we'll be leading deep dive conversations, tackling the challenging issues of our times. And that's what we're up to today. We have gathered some incredible change makers to talk about exploring human diversity and social justice, the challenges and opportunities that are present for us right now at this, well, let's say disruptive time on earth. But before I introduce today's guests, I have a simple request. I'd be so grateful if you would share this podcast with your friends or colleagues. I'd love as many people to listen to this conversation as possible. It's such an important theme to shape our future. And would you please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or whatever app you're listening to? It's so helpful. It actually enables the algorithms to find us, helps our guests to get their messages out to more people. So thank you. Now, to our four esteemed guests that we have with us in Roundtable today. First of all, we have Jennifer Brown, who is an award-winning entrepreneur, dynamic speaker, and diversity and inclusion expert. She's the founder and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, a strategic leadership and diversity consulting firm that coaches business leaders worldwide on critical issues of talent and workplace strategy. She's a passionate advocate for social equality and helps businesses foster healthier, more productive workplace cultures. She's also written two books, Inclusion, Diversity, the New Workplace and the Will to Change, and How to Be an Inclusive Leader. So welcome, Jennifer. Thanks so much, Jane, for having me. Great to have you with us, truly. Okay, next we have Dr. Terry Maltbier. He is an Associate Professor of Practice for Adult Learning and Leadership Programs in the Department of Organization and Leadership at Columbia University, and is also Faculty Director of the Columbia Coaching Certification Program. Since joining TC in 2006, he has become internationally recognized as a scholar practitioner in strategic learning, executive and organizational coaching, global leadership development, emotional, social, and cultural intelligence. And he spent 25 years in various roles in corporate and consulting prior to Columbia. So welcome, Terry. Welcome, looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. Yeah, great to have you with us. Okay, next we have Indrani Garadia. She's a native daughter of Trinidad and Tobago who survived childhood abuse. She is a warrior, an in-demand speaker, a noted advocate, activist, philanthropist, and the founder of Raft Cares, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering advocates of domestic and sexual violence, shelters to honor themselves, and combat compassion fatigue. So welcome, Indrani. Jane, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. Oh, so pleased you're with us too, really. And finally, 
we have Angelo. Angelo John Lewis is the director of the Sacred Inclusion Network, the originator of the Dialogue Circle Method, and the author of Notes for a New Age. He is also a coach, consultant, and organizational development practitioner whose clients have included Verizon, the Rockefeller Foundation, Princeton University, and the US Department of Commerce. So welcome, Angelo. Um, thank you, Jane. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, excited that you're with us, Angelo. Okay, guys, before we start, I just want our listeners to know that we are actually recording this at the beginning of July 2020, as different parts of the world are, well, releasing the restrictions we've had in place in response to COVID-19, but the world remains disruptive. And we also have Black Lives Matter opening critical conversations and perspectives right now. So let me open the conversation today with just a, well, very simple question. Exploring human diversity and social justice, what is it that's most important for us to talk about today? And anyone can take the floor. Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> and that's why we all jumped in at the same time. <laughs> I think the only way to answer that question is for us to take a step back, a deep breath, and to look at the lane that we're in. I'm not in Terry's lane, I'm not in Angelo's lane, I'm not in Jennifer's lane, I'm in my own lane. Mm. And what is the next best step for where we are? Mm. And being mindful, being aware that we are more blind than we are not. And to be so ready to be wrong. Because when I'm wrong, I know what not to do again. Mm. And, and to have the courage to be different. Not right, but different. I think the opposite of different is wrong, not right. Because I don't think any of us is right. Mm. And I, I think for me, it's what's in my lane and what can I affect? I love that perspective as you were speaking. I just felt myself exhale because suddenly I, I realize, Indrani, I don't have to solve everything for everyone. I can just deal with myself in relationship to this. You know, you... <laughs> You framed it as a simple question, and clearly it's not. <laughs> uh, for, for one, uh, that's the, the radio silence when you, you sort yeah. of pause. But when I think of the two uh, phrases that really make up today's topic, human diversity and social justice, I, I almost feel like almost the need of unpacking that because mm. I can deal with human diversity almost in a distant way, in a descriptive way. You know, I can talk about primary dimensions of diversity, stuff we're born with. I can talk about experiential dimensions of diversity that have to do with our autobiographical experience, organizational, and so on and so forth. So I think human diversity, in some ways, conceptually, is quite easy to understand. Uh, I think the challenge when we add social justice to that word 
that's when the complexity begins mm -hmm. because there we jump from it's a very emotional topic as you know and we can jump from zero to a hundred because it is emotional in a nanosecond um and so i guess for me i think it does require however that we get really real about some conversations that we get really real about the reality of power. We get really real about the systems and structures that actually reinforce. This is not a new phenomenon. Um, and it's a reason why it's not a new phenomenon, you know, and so to me, while self work is really important, and I do a lot of identity work, whether it comes with, you know, coaching or leadership development, etc at the end of the day if we don't begin to focus on the systems the policies the practices that drive the behaviors that result in social justice i think it's an interesting conversation hmm. and as you speak to that it prompts me to kind of ask all of you in a way like what does this mean to you because I'm totally with you on the human diversity thing. I, I even think I have some background in that as a white woman from England. I have some background there, but get into the social justice piece. And quite honestly, I'm, I feel completely ignorant in this space because it's never been part of my world in a way, particularly not in England, much more so I've been learning about the landscape here in America over the last 10 years. But what I realized I didn't understand, and I'd love you guys to unpack this for our listeners, is what does social justice actually mean? <laughs> I can jump in, Jane. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I love the concept of, of intersectionality that Kimberly Crenshaw who's a black woman professor popularized and defined for us, which is the overlapping, the impact of overlapping stigmatized identities. And in terms of what social justice means to me as a white cisgender woman who also identifies as LGBTQ is that I have these feet in different worlds, um, that they're worlds of privilege that is um, unearned because right. of the accident of my birth and the circumstances of that, but then the, the experience of marginalization, which by the way is softened by my privilege, yep. the experience of marginalization as an LGBTQ woman, and also being a woman too. So my intersections are those two. Um, and I think for, for LGBTQ people, social justice has, has been the underpinning of a lot of the progress we've fought to have in the workplace, mm -hmm. which is my focus area, because still to this day, half of us are closeted at work. Right. Right. And it is deeply, that's a disturbing thing to remind ourselves about. And, and in other parts of the world, of course, you know, being gay is punishable by death mm -hmm. and it's criminalized. And we just got a Supreme Court ruling last week, which was such yeah. a huge and surprising decision that, that said that our employment is protected. I mean, we used to be able to be fired in 30 states. So I think that this community has taught me social justice, how to achieve justice, how to um, lay out for our, our employers, what does justice look like for us? And justice to me means being able to do my best work, means being able to bring my full self to work, means, you know, as a woman, justice, justice means not being paid, you know, less. But I'm also very aware we have to look at 
through that intersectional lens, as a white woman, I'm paid better than black women and brown women. Right. And LGBTQ people, nobody even has the data on that because none of us, we are very difficult to count. And there are other right. diversity dimensions that are also difficult to count. So um, to me, it, social justice isn't just marching in the streets. It's, it's showing up in our workplaces and feeling whole and feeling that we belong and that we have the opportunity, the opportunity to contribute and be of service unimpeded by the headwinds of bias and microaggressions. Mm. And so, you know, I, I think that's very much a social justice issue. And on a personal level, I never thought I would be assisting the corporate world with this work as much as I am because I didn't know social justice could exist in that frame. Right. But I very much feel that how we do by our employees right now, how they're feeling heard and seen, whether they're seeing their leaders say Black Lives Matter and whether they believe them when they say it, all of these things are part, companies are a fabric of our society. And yeah. so they, there's a lot of really exciting shifts, I think, in that world of, of like, are we going to finally talk about what matters? And are we going to acknowledge that we do business in the context of the larger world and that we have employees that desperately don't feel seen and heard and acknowledged and valued? And that's a huge problem that's always been with us, but is definitely very clear right now. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. So uh, I feel... Uh... I should get my voice in. <laughs> we have a lot of articulate people here, so uh, I don't know if I'm going to measure up. But uh, one word that, that comes up for me, and I, I think about this word often, is like, what does inclusion really mean? You know, so um, I know it's easy for me to include folks that look like me, for example. It isn't so easy for me to include policemen, uh, people that have brutalized people of my race, let's say. Um, what does inclusion mean? What are, the, what are the complexities and challenges of being truly inclusive? And, uh, you know, I guess the element is when, when is it not appropriate to be inclusive? So those are the questions that are up for me. And I, I don't claim to have any answers, but these, these are the ones that I think about often, all the time. Yeah, I guess for me, um, just like diversity, I think conceptually is fairly easy to define. I actually think uh, especially in the context of the U.S. I think social justice is fairly easy to find as well. It's actually in our founding philosophies, right? Uh, it's really about the distribution of wealth um, and, you know, education and opportunities and privileges. So that part is easy. What's difficult, and I think it goes back to power, right? right? What's difficult is when I think about distribution, if I happen to be the one in a position of power, it feels like a loss. It doesn't necessarily have to be a loss, but I think that's the dynamic that we're, we're dealing with. Um, and, you know, Angelo, you mentioned before um, our, our launch, the interest in privilege. That's a word I think a lot about because as a, as a black male growing up in the inner city in the Midwest, and what we used to call the PJs, <laughs> the projects, um, you know, I didn't think the word privilege applied to me. And yet I now understand when I compare myself to my family is what has made the difference is experiences. Because what we have in common is that identity. We came from the same neighborhood, the same roots, etc. Yet I happen to go to a predominantly white high school 
which gave me a significant other cultural experience without going to another country. <laughs> right? It, it was like being for four years, it was like being in a new because economically, racially, etc. And I didn't know it at the time, but that set the stage in some ways for the rest of my life. I went to Ohio State large university, I watched black students from the inner city drop out like flies. And it was because when I was in high school, when I wanted to coast my senior year, I remember vividly my teacher stopping me, asking me to look at my schedule for the next year and marching me to the office and saying, put him in honors English, put him in, right? And again, I thought it was punishment, uh, yet that gave me the privilege of getting a job in corporate America. I still had to deal with other stuff, <laughs> but compared to, and now, you know, it's a privilege being a professor at Columbia University. Speaking of the coaching world, I am very mindful that when I go to a coaching event where I'm rarely, or I'm often one of the few black males in the room, and the event could be thousands of coaches, not hundreds, uh, one of the few, that when people look at my name tag, their tone changes. Right. That's privilege. That's yeah. privilege by association. So for me, even the term privilege, you know, has expanded because I realized, yes, there's clearly a part that I can't erase. Um, when I'm driving, it doesn't happen anymore because I'm older. <laughs> but when I was younger, <laughs> uh, getting stopped by the cops on the highway, so I, that corporate privilege didn't eliminate that. Uh, and yet it did create a number of life circumstances where I live. COVID-19 is a prime example. I don't have to go into the work. I don't get on the subway. I have plenty of food. I have, that's privilege. You know, and so for me, uh, I think, Jennifer, your comment about intersexuality, you know, there's this dynamic tension sometimes between kind of having on the one hand, but not having on the other hand, and you're the same person. And it actually shifts by context. It's almost like watching the weather change when I go from one environment to the next, how that privilege either matters or it doesn't. So for me, it has a lot to do with privilege. It has a lot to do with the intersectionality of privilege. It's not necessarily purely linked to race, although there's certainly statistical data to support some of that. So I think that's what makes it complicated. Hmm. And thank you for giving that nuance because I've never thought of it in that way, Terry, at all. And as you speak about privilege, one of the things that I've noticed in myself during this time is that I feel some shame about being white and privileged and I don't quite know what to do with that and of course that's a personal thing but I think that that's something that puts me in a space where I like I don't know how to show up there's some fear there's some anxiety for me of how to show up in these times and I think that's shared by some other people but I'm also very I'm recognizing here I'm using my white privilege to bring this to the table <laughs> as well so it's like there's that tension <clears throat> I love it Jean if I could say it's so true privilege has been weaponized been weaponized yeah 
um, it's something we hide. And I think it's actually, it's actually um, excluded without meaning to a lot of people from seeing themselves in this conversation and in this work. So right. it's, it's caused this exclusion, which hurts us because we've, got, right. we've all got to go together on this. Right. And I like to say everyone has a diversity story. Sometimes it's many times, most perhaps, it is invisible. A lot of our diversity dimensions are invisible. I can walk through the world and not be assumed to be a member of the LGBTQ community. I have to choose to come out and I have to do that every single day because that's a right. commitment that I have. But you know, I could take advantage of that passing privilege. It's another kind of privilege. Mm. Of, or if you're white passing, you can pass through the world and not identify either. So that's mm. all a whole other wrinkle. <laughs> but, but back to your question, how I understand, have come to understand my privilege is that I, this is kind of a existential thing. I think I was given it for a reason. Um, and this is a moral argument. I understand like this is not going to resonate sometimes with business leaders who always need to see the bottom line. Mm. But you're, you were given it for a reason. And it comes, you are underutilizing it in terms of building inclusion around you because you're afraid to talk about it and name it. And you're not willing to see what it enables for you that is so much harder for someone else. And so how I've thought about it is I need allies as an LGBT woman. I need male allies and I need straight allies because there are moments it's too risky for me to speak up. There's feedback I don't want to give. Again, there's difficult conversations that, or obstacles I need help removing that I don't have the power to echo somebody who brought up power. I don't have the power to take care of myself. Or maybe I'm just tired of trying to move the obstacles in my way because that's every single day. That is what allies and accomplices can do who have relatively more privilege than we do. But, I, but the piece that I'm connecting these days is I can be that accomplice. I have to be the, on the flip side. The things that, that you see in me that allow me to get into a room and, 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 and take less risk in making something move, that is the obligation and the responsibility and opportunity that I have. So if we can de-weaponize privilege, if we can bring it out of hiding and we can say, here's what you do with it. It's not something to deny because it was not something you chose perhaps. I don't know. That's debatable. We can have another webinar on that. Um, but, but a lot of it is accident of birth. And therefore, I think you didn't earn it. Now it's time to earn it back and do what's needed to utilize it and fire it up. And don't underutilize it. Don't pretend like it doesn't exist. But doing something about it, I think, will help us be more, more whole. Um, because otherwise, we're just cutting off this part of ourselves and, and, and ignoring it. And I, and I actually think that's the exact opposite of what we need to be doing right now. Jane, uh... Thank you, Jennifer, for talking about privilege and inclusion and the intersection. And I love, I love Kimberly's work. As I look at the screen, I, I find myself rating myself with these faces. So we have the white women, then we have the men, and then we have the brown woman. And this is life. I have to know where I stand everywhere I go. Mm. And if I'm aware of that, I can use the privilege still of being in that space to speak truth to it. Mm. I am here. I am not a black American. I am brown. I am from Trinidad. I am here. 
all the time. I am here. And so I think we can, I'm going to use the words claw back, and I don't know if that's what I mean, but I think we can claw back some privilege if we stand where we are and use our voices to call up our authentic selves and say something as simple as, hey, I'm here too. You know, and I want to touch on something, Terry, you said there, because you're really taking me somewhere in Drani with what you're speaking to. And it feels to me like underneath all of this, isn't this just a conversation about power and how we use it? <laughs> because at the moment, of course, we've got a lot of inequality, a lot of inequity, and the way that power is used within the systems in our society kind of keeps it the same. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It, yeah I, I just wanted to segue to a lot of what I'm hearing. Um, yeah. So uh, Terry was talking about, um, you know, an, an incident where um, he was going to college and uh, somebody said, look, we're going to just, we're going to, we're going to help you out. We're going to, we're going to invite you to the club. Let's, let's, let's put it that way. We're going we're to make things safe for you a little bit. You know, and uh, we've all on a certain level talked about, um, you know, being different and also using our, our privilege to a certain extent. So I guess the question I have is that ultimately, if we're talking about social justice, um, it, comes to, it comes down to um, redistribution, let's say. It comes down to how can we make things a more equal playing field for all of us? All of us in this conversation have a degree of privilege. So uh, I don't have an answer to this question, but what, is it, what does it take? What's involved with um, sort of giving up my privilege and uh, maybe using it in a productive way so we're, we're all equal? It's a question I have. And equal is, is probably not the right, right word, but I think you know where I'm, where, where, where I'm trying to go. Yeah, the, the, you know, when I, well, privilege and inclusion to me are part of the challenge, right? Because privilege, um, the way it gets framed is unearned privilege, right? And so that in some ways only deals with part of the dynamic, right? Part of the dynamic is yes, there are systems in place that actually provide an advantage because of my birthright. That is absolutely true and we know that in data and we don't, we don't have to argue that point. And yet it, it rings hollow sometimes to the person who's hearing it who has the privilege because they know from their own autobiography, well, wait a second, I've worked hard. I work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? So even privilege, you almost have to unpack it because there's a part of it that we, we tend to focus on the unearned part of it, uh, which creates defensiveness, I think, um, when we don't acknowledge this is complex. I get that you work hard, I get it, and, and there's also this other dynamic. And I think what happens is we jump to the other dynamic because we're tired, we're frustrated, we've done this over and over again, <laughs> you know, those of us who are on the receiving end of it. Uh, yeah, if, but, but I think that's part of it, you know, I think is acknowledging that privilege does actually have two sides to it. It's not that everyone who has privilege has not worked hard. 
and, and I think that message can get lost in the framing of privilege and how it's described, number one. Inclusion, um, I, I find it fascinating that, you know, it was workplace diversity and then it became diversity and inclusion. You know, when I, whether, whether it was the corporations that I worked for, the consulting firms that I worked for, and now Columbia University, um, inclusion actually does not mean acceptance. And, and, I, and, I, and I really mean on a deep level, not a superficial level. We go, to, we go to lunch, I have mentors, all that. That's why I succeeded in corporate. I had mentors who helped, who sponsored, et cetera. Yet the part that they missed is the house that they built wasn't designed for me, <laughs> right? right? The doorways were too narrow or too low, you know, et cetera. And so I think sometimes having conversations with se senior leaders to really, before I even get into race and gender and ethnicity and all these very difficult topics, I say, you know, you don't always understand your social psychological size. You are the chief architect of culture in this organization. And when you just brainstorm, like when you're brainstorming, people are running out the door trying to figure out, is that the new strategic imperative? You know, and so I, so I think you, so I think sometimes you have to really help leaders recognize their psychological size um, on a very close and up front level. And then we can begin to do some of the, the more difficult work. Um, because many CEOs talk about diversity and inclusion and including some of their diversity practitioners never really challenge them on being the chief architect of culture. Um, inclusion is more than inviting. Simply put, inclusion is you're inviting me in. Inclusion does not mean that the place that you've invited me in is comfortable for me. And I don't mean comfortable right. as in joyful, but comfortable as in a, a very quick example. I worked in a male dominant corporation, manufacturing, et cetera. The CEO wanted to truly wanted to mainly because he had two young daughters. <laughs> the CEO truly wanted to start paying attention to women and the status of women in the corporation, et cetera had an initiative to hire women. And I, I was consulting him at the time. And I said, well, you know, John, um, there's more women at the, in the pipeline. We, we don't need to focus there. We need to focus on top. You have zero women. <laughs> uh, like, and I'm not saying you need to hire them just because, but you have zero women. That paints a message. We hired a female. Great news. Guess what? There was no restroom in the executive suite for women. So this is what I mean, how, how there are these not so subtle, mm -hmm. but, but, but seem natural. Well, why did they need to be? There had never been a woman who worked in the, like they didn't even think about it until she brought it up. Right. And they were all mortified, you know? And so many, I used to think, how could someone be so blind? Isn't this stuff mm -hmm. just so obvious? Like I really thought, and some of it is blatant. You know, the white supremacist stuff, that's blatant. But, but the, when we talk about attacking the systems, it's much more subtle than some of that. Like they did not recognize it. He did point one, he hired a woman. Point two, dude, you don't have a ladies room. She has to walk all the way around to the other side of the building <laughs> to get to the, like he never noticed. The house was not built for her. 
he included her, he brought her in. So it often, inclusion is only the next step to exclusion, but it's not nirvana. And so I think diversity and inclusion sometimes leaves us with a, a narrow frame because it implies inviting in. It doesn't imply changing systems, expanding systems, et cetera. So that's all I'll say about that for now. Uh, Terry, do you think that your being invited in is, um, is analogous to immigrations, immigrants who come here legally? So we were invited in. The house wasn't really built for us. We're making our own very successful houses. And then all of a sudden, it's, you, you know, there are too many houses here. We don't really want so many of you. And by the way, why is your house better than my house? I was born here and you, you must have stolen that degree, that job, that whatever. Meanwhile, earned privilege. I know for myself, I ate tuna fish every day for dinner in graduate school because I had to pay my rent. So <laughs> I don't eat tuna fish now at all. It just makes me free. We don't, we don't say, hey, listen, I ate tuna fish, so blah, blah, blah. It's, it's all the, the sacrifices that everyone who wasn't born into the house had to make that's invisible to everyone else. And how do we, how do we speak about that in a way that allows the younger people to know it's okay to strive like that, and it's okay to earn that, and it's okay to speak about it. Well, where we are today has a history, right? Uh, and I think that's what's so complicated. You know, when, when we talk about, um, you know, the impact of slavery and so on, that's a, that, for some, that can feel like a really foreign concept, like, you know, Yes, I know that happened in our history, but what does that have to do with today? Um, you know, but it is that very history that has created another dynamic and that, you know, the, the sort of dirty little secret, which I learned in corporate, <laughs> which I had never thought about, is the, the senior executives, I figured out very early on, were very open to diversity, et cetera, because they weren't threatened. I, I, I didn't have language around this at the time. I was, you know, in my 20s. But I noticed that whenever I approached a white senior executive, no problem. They felt open. I didn't, I didn't feel that what I call the unspoken script. But whenever, the closer they were to me, <laughs> the more I could feel the script, you know. And so even senior leaders collude in this dance because they've actually created space that, um, you know, in my, again, one of my former corporations, they, they hired people by the generations. There was nothing in, when I wound up getting promoted, and I was 38, and I had people working for me who were white males in their 50s and 60s, there was nothing in their history that prepared them for working for a black man. Like they had never even conceptualized or conceived it. So what I mean, the house is not built for you. It's more than just comfort. Mm -hmm. It's this whole system that's been set up 
you know, and, and I'll just say it, you know, there's a class structure in the US also that says, you know, I may not be rich, but I'm always going to be better than you, black person. Right. And because and there's that's because of the buffer that has been created. So this is not a simple thing. Um, and, it, and you have to have these lived experiences to understand it. Like I was thrilled to get promoted. And then and then, you know, all hell broke loose the following weeks because there were all these older white men, older than I was, who were totally disoriented and the system was designed to protect them. Mm. Not me, you know, even though I was promoted, right? So when we talk about, so to me, I go back to power. <laughs> and I think Angelo, your point about redistribute, you know, redistribution, um, I shouldn't, you know, to me, it's, it, it's, it, it's less about redistribution per se, but it is about just distribution. You have to look at the distribution of resources by these core demographics that people can't change, race being one of them. And when you see systemic differences, you can explain it away all you want, but there's a historical reason why that keeps self-perpetuating itself. And it won't, it won't fix itself through just through hope. Hope is not a method. <laughs> right. No, and listening to you, I'm, I, when you said that Terry about the lived experience, that to me is what really helps me have a deeper understanding of the breadth and the depth and the scope of what it is that we're talking about here. It's in the lived experience. But as I hear each of you, I notice how so many of these lived experiences are invisible in our culture. Like there's, they're not, they've not been spoken about in a way that I feel they're rising now. It's almost like through the pandemic and the pause. And I don't know whether it's a time of reflection. I don't know whether... We're, we're more conscious now of these things. I don't know what it is, but I'm interested in that how much of this is hidden. Like it's hidden. I know there's aspects of this hidden within me, not just out there that's hidden to me, but there's unconscious biases inside of me that I might not even be aware of as I'm part of these systems that you speak of. And you know, part of me makes me, it makes me think about spirituality, Angelo, and some of the conversations we've had and rising consciousness and how that helps us. I mean, there's a quote by Rumi out beyond, and I'm paraphrasing here, out beyond the field of right and wrong. There is a field, I'll meet you there. But somehow spirituality and the interconnectedness of everything and somehow opens a perspective of global human for me, but that's also a privileged thing, isn't it? So it's like I, I go down a path and then I realize I have a realization to a level. I, I don't totally understand by any stretch, but then I have an, and I'm like, Oh, and I, I bump into myself and it's interesting. Like as individuals, if we do stay in our lane, like you're talking about Indrani and yet we want to really, go in the right direction. Like 
and everything, there's so much that's invisible here. How do we do that? How do we get, to, and is it that we get to the space of global human? Or is that not what this is about? Well, Jane, <laughs> we stay in our lane and when we do our work, the lane gets wider. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not a bigger piece of the pie, it's a bigger pie. Right. So we have to do more powerful work and we have to, to realize that we can bring more people in. Mm. But I cannot do the work that Jennifer's doing. I cannot do Angelo's work. I cannot do Terry's work or your work. I really have to figure out what the core of my work is and make sure that I can reach as many people as I can in the narrow lane and then just keep moving out and out and out until the lane is like a, an embrace, right? Mm. See, I understand that conceptually, right? And I, but actually, when I think about that in practice in my business, for example, in marketing, I have ideal clients. My ideal client is white, right? Because that's what I know. And then I think about this conversation we're having and I'm thinking, wow, like, and, and still most of my friends, just because of the places I've been and the things I've done, are still white because I'm from England, right? And it's then, so how, and I would say I'm not racist, but I know I, I have unconscious bias. I would say I'm very open and I know I'd be challenged on that and I'm sure I can find things that show that, that are really unconscious. But it's like, how, like, what am I meant to do with that? Because am I supposed to do the pro-choice? Is that what it's like? Is that how I get a more diverse, expanded capacity in my lane? Do I? May, may I? Yeah, please I, do, I, please. I think, you, I think you have to, we have to look at who is our client's client? Right. Yes, you do, you do the work yeah. and you touch people and they touch other people and you begin to seed through them other, other pieces that you hadn't thought about. And then they begin to touch other people and all of a sudden yeah. your work is growing out, your lane is opening without yeah. you directly affecting it because people are saying, hey, she's talking about this. She knows she hasn't done it. She wants to do it. You should check her out. Right. And to be fair, that is happening. And one of the things I'm holding, particularly in the podcast, is I'm very conscious. I was very conscious when I started this. I didn't want all white. I mean, I suppose white female would be my default. But then I, I'm very conscious of platforming other voices, but it still doesn't feel enough. I feel very frustrated about the world we live in and the systems that we're all like prisoned, imprisoned within. That's what it feels like sometimes. And I can't see how we get from here to there, which is... Well, Jane, I, I think you just highlighted something that's... Oh, yeah that I believe is a truism, which is the normality of bias, right? Because right. bias is a normal human process. Yeah. And so I think part of the challenge also is we don't want to be biased. We right. don't, and if we are, we don't want to admit it. We don't want right. to be racist. We don't want to be any of those mm -hmm. things. I mean, 
those are normal tendencies. You can't get rid of it. The thing is, what do you do with it? Right? Because yeah. I think until you make what is subject object, right. you can't do the work. And so I think that's part of it, right? That you, and, and I think for me, I learned it incidentally, but I then have integrated it into my practice. You mentioned that therefore it is not surprising who your client base is, et cetera, because that, that will keep replicating itself, right? Right. You know, and yet my autobiographical experience has, has a lot to do with a series of incidental contact. Right. right, but it was the incidental contact that changed understanding. Mm. Right? So you you really can't do it from afar, because then no matter then the other is hypothetical, mm. and and so the only way you're going to understand the other is be with the other, and so I think contact. You know, once we had one female senior executive, five years later we had six. Mm. You know, right? So. You know, he wasn't, you know, if I wouldn't have said to him, he was a CEO, I said, John, dude, this is not complicated. Hire a female. You have none. Like, you know, so how are you going to talk to everyone else, chief architect of culture? How are you going to talk to everyone else about doing this? And you have it. When the audios don't match the visuals, people believe the visuals every time. Yeah. Right. And so it sounds simple, but I think part of it is segregation is what allows this system to continue to reinforce itself. We're more comfortable living around who we are and those who are similar. And that just constantly reinforces that closed system dynamic. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. Because that also explains a little bit for me my culture shock. Because even though I'm white and female, I'm not American. <laughs> And I live here. And uh, it was interesting as you were talking about immigration in Johnny. I, whenever I go to a government office, they, they call my name by first prefacing it with, um, oh gosh, what is it now? Um, alien resident, permanent alien resident, Jane Rollo to desk number one, <laughs> which is so bizarre. And, you know, and also the other thing that I want to bring into this is um, over a decade ago, I was seriously ill for three years and was in a wheelchair for three years. And nobody makes eye contact or speaks to you when you're in a wheelchair ever. They talk to the person pushing you as though you're deaf, dumb and blind sat in the wheelchair. So there's a lot here. <laughs> there really is. So is there, I want to ask about the link between violence and what we're talking about here, because Jennifer, you were talking about weaponizing. And I do notice the metaphor of war, particularly around the Black Lives Matter campaign. And I just wonder how that is impacting the conversations. Mm, I, I would, I would frame um we're in this unfortunate and perhaps necessary moment of the call out culture mm. um and uh i say it's necessary needs to be used in a limited way i think uh when we give feedback to each other about how we're we're propagating exclusionary dynamics behaviors policies practices needs to be called out and we're in an age of calling out 
um, calling in is, is another way. Um, it's a way of showing grace for change and learning and mistakes. Uh, so there's a, there's a level, I guess, if we define violence, I don't think this is what you mean, but defining the, the violence is the collateral damage perhaps in the call out world. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, it is hard. So even before this moment we're in now, we had well-meaning people who wanted to be better. Mm-hmm. Um, but hope is not a strategy. I think as Terry said, um, right. we can't just, you know, view ourselves as good people and therefore the systems are going to change. I think this right. has been the big fallacy. And this is the reason why Robin D'Angelo says there's nothing more dangerous than a well-meaning white liberal. It's dangerous because it is not, there's no work involved. <laughs> there's no right. power shifting involved. There's no utilizing what you, the access you have to change the system in that. And it's that belief that like, I'm, I have daughters, therefore I under, I'm going to understand everything I need to know about gender equity. No, um, it might give you a tiny bit of lived experience familiarity, but it is not at all the same as being an agent for change. Um, so anyway, but back to calling in and calling out, I think calling in is important to dive into because the grace we're going to need to somehow find our way to for learning, learning may come from violence. It may come from the demands and the, you know, and it also though the sustained learning over time will probably come from the way we are able to, you know, white person to white person as one example, mm-hmm. learn together, give feedback, not cause more emotional labor on those who are already working really, really hard right now. And, mm-hmm. you know, and forever, 400 years. But the learning we need to do together is going to be really critical. And that's going to have to happen in a space that's safe for psychologically safe for mistakes, making apologies, getting the feedback we need to sort of calibrate allyship and say, did this work? And who did it work for? And did it have the desired impact? And what do I need to change? But white people right now are floundering, Mm. just floundering. Um, And that's as it should be. You should be extremely uncomfortable right now. Yeah. And you should be just breathing in the floundering. Watch yourself flounder <laughs> because you know what? Like you haven't paid attention to this or perhaps I've never been shown, although I don't think that's true. You certainly have not taken ownership. We have, we have jobbed out diversity and inclusion to people of diverse identities right. and said, well, you lead this for the entire organization. One of my clients, big consumer products company, 80,000 people, diversity team of two and a half people. It is an impossible job and it's not being effective and it's, it is unfair and violent to that person who desperately wants to do the work and is really passionate about the work, but it is completely stacked against her success. So there's something really backwards about how we've tackled change and who's been who's been involved in owning it. And we all know this on the panel, but I just think that we haven't adequately involved a giant swath of people in change. And and thus I've been disappointed over and over with the statistics and the lack of representation and the fact that people are still fleeing corporate America because they just can't stand it anymore and bailing out left and right, not making it to the C-suite because the numbers of microaggressions and the headwinds are so strong that like you'd have to be superhuman to hang in there that's still the reality. So we, we've got to get a lot more people involved. And I tell you, this keeps me up at night. Why do people not care? Why are they apathetic? Why are they sitting in paralysis? Why is that okay? Um, 
how come they don't want to talk about their privilege? Because every time you do, they say, well, I worked hard and I had a hard life. Mm-hmm. Like, why are we still, it's just, <laughs> we're there. It's, un- it's an uncomfortable place. I've been there for years, but I mean, now it's really coming to a head and I think people are being asked to do more and I'm, I'm asking them to do more. I'm asking us to do more and I'm trying to role model what more looks like. But I do think there's some, I'd love the panel's thoughts on sort of how do, how does the white community or non-black community, which is, by the way, there's a lot of other diversities we're not talking about too. Um, (laughs) We have to talk about that as well. But how do we mobilize in support of of this community and activate our allyship? Um, And where is that safe space to do the learning? Because people, I'm not sure people learn and change in a danger place, in a place of shame, in a place of feeling incapable and small. It's very difficult to get back on the horse every single day and do it. So that's something that I, I'm puzzled by and, and not in a bad way. I just think we've got to figure out what we do about that. Well, I think one of the, the, the challenges is, uh, so not surprising, they're having tons of conversations about this around our university. Uh, students are driving it, faculty, um, et cetera. And, and one dynamic that often, uh, we have a colleague, Daryl Wayne Sue, who talks about, does research on the notion of microaggressions and, and, and race talk and why it's so difficult. And, and what you will almost hear almost always here, and we, we have a, a summer cohort that's very diverse. They had a very difficult time this summer because of all of this, including with the faculty <laughs> who didn't really know, know how to handle it. But, you know, when, the, when, the, when there was a conversation, you know, about half the group said they want it to be a safe space. Well, unfortunately, that's kind of the problem. So I agree with you that there's the anxious brain and the curious brain. So we don't want them in the anxious brain because everything just shuts down. But there's a lot of space between safe um, and brave, right? Mm -hmm. And so a safe space is not gonna get you there because it's been safe for the people who have privilege for decades and centuries. A brave space, I think is different than attack. So I think there's a lot of space between anxious brain and curious brain, and I think it's brave. Um, And so I think we have to frame the conversation that it's gonna require a brave space. There are conditions for that. Um, And yet, like the moment I hear someone say they want it to be safe, I can predict what the conversation is gonna be. Surface. And then you're gonna get frustration on both sides, right? because <laughs> some are going to wonder why in the heck are we talking about this and what are we doing because see if it's safe it's also not productive see that's the that's the that's the sort of self-sealing loop even the people who want it to be safe recognize nothing's happening <laughs> right right and then the people who you know have experiences every day i'm like what the hell yeah <laughs> you know this is like what do you mean safe space Right, so safe doesn't really get us there. I think we have to learn how to be brave. Uh, and Angela, I think I, I, I mentioned, I heard you in, in your introduction um, talk about dialogue. And so I, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on the kinds of, because we, we know we have to change the conversation and, and how do we do that in a way that people can stay with it and not run from it? 
I mean, I know I'm not the moderator, but, but I would love to hear your thoughts. Well, I mean, um, speaking of lanes, I just very, 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 very simply, um, you create ground rules or norms uh, to make conversation quote safe. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of them that I like to use is speak from your experience. You know, um, so. Um, I know because I used to work at Princeton University and I became very frustrated when, um, you know, as a middle management person of color, they invite me to all these meetings and stuff, which was felt very um, kind of empowering for a moment. Then I realized people, nothing gets done. Everybody's got a grand idea about, you know, what should happen or whatever. Blah, 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 blah. So uh, as a result of that, we created a process that was, was called dialogue circles. It used to be called diversity tables way back in the day. And I found that you got, you've, got, you've got to create some norms to get people to agree on to have a conversation, to make a long story short. And um, it's not going to happen over time. You have to be patient. It's not necessarily going to happen in that one dialogue space. You have a group together for a while um, that develops some norms that they can talk to one another. They could get to these kind of brave conversations that you're, you know, you're advocating, you're, you're referencing. So it makes me want to ask, when you said brave conversations, both of you, that makes me go like, yeah, that's where I want to go. Because it's almost like when you say brave conversation, to me, my subjective response to that is I need to give voice to things I haven't given voice to before. So that's my ask of us right now is how would we model a brave conversation here? I mean, I, I didn't think of it in this frame, but Angela, when you said speak from your experience, you know, I think I've been doing that almost since the beginning of the call here, right? Because when people speak from their experience, it's authentic. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it has meaning and it has resonance. I think when we, so I think having brave spaces where, Jane, people can actually name and label experiences that they've kept silent um and and process it and get it out here like so it's it's right now it's in you so it, you're the subject of it so you can't work with it right but when you get it out here not only you but others can work with it with you right and so i think that's what makes a space brave it's not safe because you feel vulnerable actually <laughs> right when you so vulnerability is part of what's needed um, and I'm not sure that we often feel safe when we're vulnerable, um, <laughs> always, right? So that, that's the whole dynamic of safety. I think we want it, but it doesn't necessarily get us where we need to be. So thank you for both. For... Jane, when I think of brave conversations, I have to channel what Terry's saying, because unless I am authentic, and what Angelo is saying, experience, I really don't have anything to say. Mm. So when I show up in a space and I say, I was severely abused as a child, I ended generational violence, that is why I created the foundation, there is a thread that people can follow and people can say, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But I cannot say 
that I am a child of war, that's why I created this. I cannot say that I am a child of incest because that's not what it was. So we have to be very specific with our experience and then be very brave with it and know if we are speaking truth, we are protected. And I think when you're brave and authentic, there is protection. I don't know where the protection comes from, but I feel protected when I am brave and authentic. That's beautiful. And I think um, I was very scared to come out on big stages as LGBTQ and, um, you know, think about the, it's not about me anymore. It's not difficult for me anymore. It's actually serving a purpose of enabling others to feel seen. And, and when I know that many are not feeling that way and that there's so much violence in, the, in my community, um, to see me is so important. And so it's not about me at this point. It's not, it, my healing has been happening. And, and actually through sharing our stories and our truth, we heal. We feel, we feel they become, I love the subject object, Terry, you know, they become the object. And then to me, it's felt like it's become a tool that I can now intentionally, I have control over it, which feels very empowering. And I know exactly why and how I'm wielding it. I know exactly what I'm doing. And I think regardless of, um, of how we're, how we may be feeling small or scared to share, the sharing and the even admitting we don't have the answers on the part of perhaps straight white male leadership, the bravery there is the admitting not having the answers, is the acknowledgement and the laying out of the mistakes I've made or the assumptions I've made, or here's how I notice my bias, or here's my own path. Here's what I'm committing to do publicly. And it's, a, it's an art. This is a really hard thing and very few leaders do it well. I'm sure you all would agree. But the ones that do um, aren't hiding. They're coming out. They're not being silent right now. They are, they are trying. They're jumping in imperfectly. Big time imperfection. That is extremely difficult to do. I would say imperfection is not tolerated in white supremacy culture, which is what we're all living in. So think about that bigger frame, right? And all the expectations that, that live in perhaps a white straight male leader, the work of bravery there, where is their edge? And that's what I try, we try to, you know, and that's scary stuff. It's scary not to have all the answers when you're in charge of a lot of things. You've been paid to deliver on certain things. And, and now literally, you know, the least amount of something of your entire workforce. And you have to stand up and talk about that and be authentic and real. It's beautiful when you see it. It's rare. Um, but that's, I think, what bravery, I want to talk about what bravery looks like for different, you know, people, because I think it's important to define it. When you see it, you know it. Yes. <laughs> and you appreciate it. Yeah. You know, people, people in the organization can breathe when they see a leader going through that process, right? Yeah, it's, it's gosh, maybe, maybe there is an opening where we can meet in the field beyond right and wrong. And Jennifer, before we started recording, you talked about allies, advocates, and accomplices. Mm. Can you just speak to that a little bit for our listeners? Sure. Um, so so Al, if for listeners aren't familiar with the concept of ally, it's utilizing your voice, your position, your power, your influence, whatever source that comes from to uh, raise up the voices of others who may not be seen and heard mm -hmm. in a system. And so being an ally as an LGBTQ woman, straight allies helped, helped me 
uh, find my voice and then get the courage and also help push the needle on our, our movement as a community. We never could have accomplished that. And so we're in this similar moment now of potential allyship, a very imperfect allyship of a lot of really well-meaning people that I would argue don't have the toolkit yet and the mindset shift that we're going to need to go the distance right right now. Mm -hmm. But I say aspiring allies. Um, we're all aspiring. I never claim the title of ally unless somebody in an affected group gives it to me. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a really important thing to think about. And allying isn't just once a year. It's not just during pride. If you want to be a straight ally, it's, it's, it's literally, to me, it's in the DNA of how you walk through the world. You're always noticing who's not at the table, who's being spoken over, who's not, who, where is the, the playing field not level? How can I raise my voice to speak to that so that somebody else doesn't have to do the labor of doing that? That's allyship. But some people believe allyship is also has this connotation of kind of a handout, like coming down from on high and assisting. Mm -hmm. I think accomplicing, which we, I really like, even though it has these other overtones of criminality, um, it's, it's common in the social justice world, which is like, I'm in your getaway car and the engine is running and I'm here. If you never need me, that's fine, but I'm here for you. It's not about glory. It's not getting the award. It is literally in the trenches. It's the difference between, oh, I'm watching somebody drown and I'm like freaking out on the shore. They're drowning versus jumping in mm. and doing something about it. So I, I think that the there's a, there are nuances of language. Some, co some companies and people like advocate, they think it's more active than ally. But anyway, these words are going to resonate differently for some of us. Um, but re either way, just think about your own journey. My recommendation of allyship towards allyship, towards being called an ally. Is that something you can earn every day with your actions, with your deeds? Um, and by the way, don't do it in private because we've got to role model what this looks like for others who are lacking the framework and the examples to mimic, to copy. We learn through doing that. And we also learn when we see another person of any kind of privilege doing something, it somehow makes it safer for us to also do it. I watch men learn from other men in really interesting ways all the time. And it really struck me. If I can, the messenger matters as much as the message. If we can help a leader that looks like a certain group say a certain thing, it's all going to go miles further than me saying something or some of the folks on this panel saying something. We've all been heard differently because of the package that we're in. Mm -hmm. So this is another reason why we've got to kind of broaden the number of messengers that are equipped to stand up and publicly demonstrate what this looks like so we can follow the leader. Um, yeah, so that's what I've been, I hope, that, I hope that's helpful. And I would love to hear yeah. other perspectives on the panel about those words. Words are powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So are there any other perspectives about those words? Because I really like them. They've, they've just helped me understand like the way that I could model going forward in a visible way that other people can then see. Because I, as you were speaking, I noticed I've, I have been, well, people have called me an ally for a number of different reasons over the years, but it's been hidden. It's not been visible. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Yeah. And Angelo, just before I bring the conversation to a close, because I'm noticing time, I do want to ask you a little bit about spirituality and consciousness and this conversation, because you run the Sacred Inclusion Network. And I just wondered on your 
perspective on uh, uh, is this related in any way higher levels of consciousness better at this or or not is that just a myth <laughs> uh, well uh, uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna kind of like um i don't know if i'm gonna directly answer your question but i was thinking early when you were talking about um your emotions right. you're talking about anger and you you also talked about you owned your own sort of confusion about this you know right. the, the way i guess the way i look at things is that the more I open up myself to these kind of unfamiliar types of dimensions, um, see what they mean for me and see what they mean for others, the more I can grow. To me, that is spirituality to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. I have a certain way that I, I know that works for me, but that's not necessarily, there's no evolution necessarily in that, you know? So, um, I mean, I struggle with the whole anger thing, by the way. Um, you know, I was, I, I actually turned on Tucker Carlson the other day. Ooh. And um, he had all these, these uh, pictures of people like breaking these uh, statues and whatnot, you know. I said, damn, you know, and I know I don't want to go there. I'm not going to, maybe I'm, I'm too old. Maybe if I was like, you know, 21, I'd be breaking some statues myself, you know. So it gets, it gets to be, what, what can I do? What can I do with these kind of emotions? Whether it's anger, whether it's confusion, how can I harness it, uh, you know, for the good of myself and for others? You know, and that's, that's kind of like a lifelong <laughs> a lifelong quest to be able to figure out. And when you, when you add systemic stuff in there, uh, it gets more complex and even more difficult. Mm, thank you. Okay, guys, I'm noticing the time. So I just want to ask each of you um, briefly, if there was something you'd hoped we'd talk about today, you know, what might it be? And I'm just going to give each of you just a short amount of time to just share something with our listeners that you would like them to know. And Indrani, can we start with you? Dear listener, if you are being abused, I want you to know that you did not deserve it. You didn't make it happen. You have a right for joy and peace and safety. And there are many resources for you. So you can go to the foundation, raftcares.org, and look around. You can always find me on social media. I will be your ally in changing the reality if that's what you want. And if it's not, I'll walk with you. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you, Njani. Terry, final words. Yeah, um, I think mindset matters. And we've talked about a number of concepts. I think our mindset, our worldview, our whatever you want to call it, the lens through which we see the world impacts everything else. So we've talked about privilege. We've talked about inclusion. We've talked about social justice. Um, one thing we haven't talked about directly, but I think it's also on the pages today is, is white supremacy saw in there. You know, it's another one of those terms that we use an extremist view, which then allows every other white person to eliminate themselves from that conversation, right? right? So white supremacy is not only what we see on television, right? Um, in Virginia and other places. White supremacy actually is co uh, colluding in maintaining the status quo. Um, and so I think that's what I mean by conceptual clarity. I mean, we bounce these terms around white supremacy or inclusion, and we sort of take this automatic definition, which often 
you know, annihilates people because I say, oh, that I don't have anything to do with that. Uh, but I think when 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 we get into any of these terms, I think I would be curious about it. Like, what does that mean? What do you think it means? And is that the only thing it means? <laughs> right. uh, and how would you describe it and see yourself in it? Right. So if you if if that's not what it means to you, how would you describe it, which would include you? Um, right. Because I think that is it's so easy to frame these concepts in narrow terms uh, and allows people to say, ah, oh, that's not me. Um, so I would I would invite us all to continue to strive to go deeper and worldview conceptual clarity, I think helps us get there. So thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. It's been great to be with all of you. I've learned a lot. Um, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Terry. Jennifer. Sure, I loved that. I loved that. Um, thank you, everybody. I'm so honored to be here too. I've, I've been taking pages of notes uh, from all of you. <laughs> uh, I would say um, stamina. So remember, this is a long um, muscle building exercise and moment and opportunity that we're in. And um, I know there's a lot of anti-racist book lists going around, right? There's a lot of so many, so many tips. I mean, I'm amazed if anybody asked me right now, I don't know what to do, Jennifer. <laughs> like, have you, where are you living right now? Uh, the question though is overwhelm. It could be paralysis, you know, getting stuck in shame, not taking the right next step. So um, I have a model, a four-part model of, of inclusive leader journey, inclusive human journey. And it's from unaware to aware to active to advocate. And I, it's very important to know where you are in order to take that right next step um, for you. And also to think of this as just like we watch our health, just like we train for a marathon for months before we try to run the full race. We want to be able to complete the race and then some. We don't want to be injured by the time we complete the race. We want to have the fortitude and the strength and the muscle developed in a healthy way. And I'm not sure why, you know, at least speaking to white American experience now, it's this is going to be an extremely long journey. Mm -hmm. And so I think about our learning and our progression um, on, on all dimensions of diversity, actually. I mean, I've been talking about this forever, but right now that happens to be the identity that's so much in focus. But the same is true for all identities, LGBTQ. Um, you should be doing your learning in pieces that you can digest and metabolize and then make overt like you said, Jane, like how do I become more public about what I'm learning and yeah. what I'm actually shifting in my behavior? Um, how can I, and, and be doing my work, this should be a daily practice. It should be hygiene. Um, to be a, an inclusive individual, somebody who believes that you know, our society needs improving, um, it, it means that we have to be on our own learning journey and our activation journey and um, grace with ourselves, patience with ourselves, but you must, be moving forward is to me, to me, the non-negotiable. Um, and, uh, that's, that's going to, it's good. You're going to have to move through a lot of emotions. Um, and that's, you know, it's to be expected. This is and and anytime you feel that this is too hard, we need to remember the difficulty of being certain identities in our society and the, the very, very real different lived experience and remember hard for you is nothing like hard for others perhaps. Mm -hmm. And, you know, stay in it. 
that's like, there's really no replacement. The only way around this is through. <laughs> and I am excited. I'm excited <laughs> to see what we're capable of. We're going to see. <laughs> we're going to see. Right. Thank you for having me, though. <laughs> Thank you. Angelo. Yeah, you know, um, we've been talking about social justice and diversity. And at the same time, I think it's useful to acknowledge, at least I find it useful to acknowledge, that there's all these other things that are going on um, with the world. You know, we've got environmental stuff that's incredibly vicious. We've got income inequality. We have this particular thing. So um, uh, to me, it's like this is a moment where we can, we can individually and collectively do something. I don't know what that means for any, everybody on this panel. I, I kind of have a, at least an emerging sense of what it means for me. Um, but it's useful to think about what is, what, what is my particular purpose? What is the thing that I want to do in life? And how does, that, how does that impact or converge with, I'll call it the planet's purpose? And how can I align myself with that? So that's something that I think about. And, uh, you know, so anyway, thank you also for inviting me. It's been, it's been a privilege to be with you. Yeah. to use that word <laughs> thank you my gosh thank you to all of you um my mind has just been expanded talking about mindset in this space and i just love how we've talked from the theoretical to the pragmatic to the modeling you know right the way through all different levels of system this conversation has taken us which has really opened my eyes in a big way so i want to honor each of you and thank you for bringing this conversation um, to our listeners because I just know they will have learned and will continue to learn, let's hope, so much. So thank you. Okay, well, let me ask you listeners, what did you think? <laughs> Remember that the purpose of a podcast like this is not just to make you think, it's actually to get you to take some action. Yes, this means you need to do something differently as a result. So before you turn this off and get back to your day, just take a moment and just pause and write down perhaps two or three insights, two or three key things, action items, things that you can implement that will make a meaningful difference and help to take your life and our lives and maybe even all lives in the right direction. Because knowledge is not power, it's only potential power. What truly makes an impact is action. So ask yourself, what do you feel inspired to do and be after this conversation? And let me remind you that all the resources and links for our guests are in the show notes at sacredchangemakers.com. And our growing community of changemakers are actually our sponsors who help us to keep doing our work in the world. We're a network of people committed to making the world a better place. We support each other to grow personally and professionally. And together, we are making a direct impact aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, all visible on our website. And if our episode resonated with you today, I hope you'll consider joining us. So for now, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for all the work you do to make our world a better place. Until next time, lots of love. <laughs>